Yeah, thanks, uh, Julia. And I think we were sufficiently warned ahead also that we need to stick to the time. But I think it would be also quite beneficial to get a bit more time for feedback and questions afterwards. Um, and maybe my second comment before starting is that, I mean, although, as Julia mentioned, I do also have a bit of an academic background, but I try to focus a bit on some of the practical challenges of peace building. And some of that may also then lead to the need for some set of skills which may not necessarily be obvious on the, uh, in the spotlight of, of peace studies, but might be quite important in terms of the, the practical work later on. In terms of my background, I mean, a lot of my experiences are coming from Sri Lanka, but, uh, and I was wondering whether I should give a short introduction to Sri Lanka, but I'm a bit afraid that this would probably be another workshop in itself, and it resonates very well what Dan said this morning also that in many ways Sri Lanka is probably also an example of 30 years of conflict and a lot of very complex causes and probably not a single root cause at all. So it's not, not easy to in a way even summarize the, the background of, of conflict in, in Sri Lanka that easily. But this leads me maybe to my first point which I think is of relevance for peace studies that I think it's still quite important and there's a big need for proper conflict analysis and, and we may also sometimes these days lose out a bit on that because we either have very specific kind of studies or very superficial reports in the media, uh, sometimes even too much of that superficiality in, in, in the way uh, conflict is being reported about. And I think that's maybe one of the challenges also where I would see the importance of academic research, but also the benefit then for people who work on peace issues to have proper and sound analysis. And I think the International Crisis Group was mentioned also in the morning, and I think they started very much with that purpose also to provide sound analysis on country situations. And I think that also got a bit lost, so maybe this is something where academia can play a greater role again to highlight a bit the complexities of conflicts and, and country situations in which we want to uh, support some change. And maybe a short insight also to our work at, at International Alert. I mean, we have a, a programming framework that tries to inform us a bit in terms of doing a conflict analysis, because I think one of the challenges there is also where to start if you have such a complexity. And this is, again, probably an area where more discussion and input also from academia would be useful for us on the practitioner side. And I mean, we, we do look at, at peace factors, which are in, in our work very much linked often also to economic aspects, livelihood, income, but also then aspects of well-being, power structures, but also justice and security. But sometimes helpful to have this kind of analytical categories that just forces you also to look at different aspects of conflict or also peace opportunities. And very often we tend to come from a very specific side or angle, and, and that's where we need analytical frameworks also to ensure that we also look at different sides of problems and opportunities. But in terms of doing peace building, and this is what I'm coming from, we, we are more, we are not in peacekeeping, or the other dimensions, we are, we are doing peace building, although I mean, it has been presented in the morning a bit that peace building is predominantly an activity that takes place after a war has finished or a peace agreement has been signed. 
I would like to add to that that I personally sometimes find it a bit of a pity that there's so little support for peace building before a war or conflict starts. I mean, to some extent, of course, after peace agreement, as it was mentioned, I mean, a lot of them collapses anyhow, so we might anyhow be in a cycle where we do probably rather peace building to prevent conflict again. But I mean, Bangladesh was mentioned as an example this morning. It's very difficult to get any support for peace building work in Bangladesh because it's not seen as a country where there is already a kind of visible conflict. But maybe it would require much more interventions than countries that are just emerging out of a conflict. So this is maybe also one of our dilemmas that we are facing. But in terms of practical challenges in, in our work, just wanted to highlight three uh, challenges briefly. And the first one is maybe the, 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 the most unusual one, but I think a lot of our work um, is very much to, to support the formation of new networks, association, movements, because in many conflict situations you have conflict parties or political groups that have very fixed and strong opinions on the conflict. And yes, you could come in as the external mediator, and that's, that's one part of what our sector does to mediate or facilitate between warring parties. But I think sometimes it's also quite important to see whether new voices or alternative political voices can be fostered within that conflict context within that country. And what we and also other organizations very often do is that we then work with new constituencies, whether it's a business sector or youth constituencies, or sometimes even religious leaders. But I think what is a bit underestimated in that exercise is how much energy, but also skills are going into that, what we call accompaniment to support this kind of movement building or forming a new group of people. And this is not just to develop trust and motivation and maybe also directions what, or input to directions that this new initiative could do, but very often it actually also ends up uh, to very practical kind of issues such as uh, how to build an organization, to set up a board of directors, to have systems in place to disperse funds or to organize activities. And I think sometimes actually peace builders would do well if you would have a bit more skills on organizational development. <laughs> and if there is a Department of Peace Studies, I would quite strongly encourage to, in one way or the other, include that into your curricula as well, because we do spend a lot of time and we do a lot of mistakes in that field. And we also suffer from that, because if you create organizations, then they also tend to stay on, even beyond the famous project cycle. So, if they're set up well, I think we may also have a, a bigger impact. And of course, there's always this kind of discussion, I mean, is it even good to create new organizations, especially in the peace building sector, that's sometimes a critique that we're also facing, and I think you need to find a good balance. I mean, very often, I mean, in Sri Lanka, for example, we started working quite a lot with the business community as a new agent for peace, or taking up also political issues, uh, with, within, within Sri Lanka, for example. But it's still, I mean, looking back, I mean, when we started doing this in 2000-2001, there was a group of big business leaders or people in, from Colombo who formed a network called Sri Lanka First who tried to lobby for a negotiated settlement to the conflict that was also escalating at that time. But, I mean, it, 
as a matter of fact, I mean, the mainstream umbrella bodies like the Chamber, Ceylon Chamber of Commerce and other associations were very uneasy about that and said, no, I mean, let's not politicize our bodies, you know, we, we don't want that kind of business for peace discussion within our mainstream organization. So they almost forced these kind of individuals then to operate outside and, and in support then with, with us also more initiatives then came up. But interestingly, four or five years later then, the Ceylon Chamber of Commerce, for example, which is the apex business body in Sri Lanka then, did set up their own peace and reconciliation unit initiated all sorts of business for peace activities. So to some extent, sometimes an outside movement also then ensures that a certain new topic becomes more mainstream and at some point also easier, more acceptable for established institutions to then take it up. But for us then the challenge is how to then again facilitate that kind of process of then suddenly having established and new organizations all doing the same. At some point that's good for us if a topic becomes more mainstream but very often it also leads to competition and infights and jealousies, which is again something very unexpected for us then to mediate. But sometimes even from a spoiler side, it's something that I learned in Sri Lanka also, it's, it's even a strategy which I think a colleague of mine once called explicit duplicity. If you don't like a movement, you purposefully create something very similar, same name, almost identical logo, same agenda, and then people get busy fighting each other rather than um, fighting for the cause for which the organization has been set up initially. So it's quite a devious, <laughs> but sometimes also a well working strategy. And again, it needs to be managed and negotiated, which is then in many ways something that takes a lot of our time working with these um, partner organizations or individuals. Then as a second challenge, um, I think I mentioned, and it was also already a bit touched upon in the morning, this, there's often quite a gap between the local and the national level changes that we want to achieve. And I mean, there are these famous uh, peace-building triangles with the different levels where people are working. Often it's quite convenient, the organizations just maintain their, their, the focus of their work on a particular level and then would claim others do work on the grassroots level, we work on the top political level, but that is often something that doesn't then connect automatically. It's quite important that as an organization, as a peace-building program, one needs to attempt also to cross or connect these different levels. But although I would fully agree again with what Dan said also in the morning, that the theory of change discussion is probably a bit narrow-minded within the development sector, the way it is being imposed upon us at the moment. But there's nonetheless often a need to sharpen our assumptions a bit better at the design stage. And this kind of, if you do that, is then really something that's happening. I mean, that is often not really critically enough thought through. I mean, setting up a dialogue among certain people or empowering a group of young political leaders or working with MPs, how does that then really lead to a new constitution or changes in the political system or a wider outreach to not like-minded kind of constituencies in society. So I think we do need to strategize it sometimes a bit better. And there was an interesting report to which we also contributed that talked about in a kind of nice way also that projects or activities that we do often have these kind of hope lines 
there is a kind of an inherent, well-minded assumption that working with this type group of people, there will be a, a certain change. But I think we need uh, to do a bit more research and consultations also to ensure that we can also design a project strategy, even if it takes longer than this famous one-year cycle, that we really have a bigger impact. But similarly, um, I think we also need to ensure that research connects more to policy change. I think there are a lot of hope lines here as well, not just within academia, but also within the NGO work where we do a lot of mapping or data gathering at the beginning of a project, but how does that really feed into, into policy change? And one of my positive experiences with that also in Sri Lanka where we did a national youth survey twice was that research sometimes can be also quite an interest, interesting tool to foster or support dialogue from the very beginning. And I think it's, it's a bit coming up also in terms of some of the economic and social research councils kind of calls, but I think if you have, if you involve stakeholders from, for example, in this case, from the youth ministry or youth movements at the beginning, at, this, at the time when you design a questionnaire and, and roll out the kind of empirical work, I mean, that's the time where you can create ownership and interest, which makes it much more easier once the findings and results are there to then also have a dialogue with policymakers or practitioners in terms of, um, change in their work and programs and policies. And finally, briefly, because I saw the five minutes already, I mean, this role of aid in stabilizing, destabilizing peace processes, I think that is one of the biggest challenges that, again, we are facing quite often. And again, where there's probably quite a, a need that also the peace building in the development sector needs to talk much more with each other as then also, of course, academia and the practitioners. I just would like to point out probably two things quickly. Firstly, I mean, I still think that there is quite a big need still to, to teach and to raise awareness on the do no harm or conflict sensitivity concept. I mean, it, it has come up 10, 15 years ago, Mary Anderson's do no harm. And I think it's in many ways an example where everyone feels that's mainstream. We all know this. You don't have to teach or preach that anymore. But it's surprising again and again how 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 little it is really being implemented in, in, in practice. And I think the only thing that really got mainstreamed as a result of that is that everywhere you find conflict advisors now in embassies and in big organizations, but having a conflict advisor does not necessarily change the practice of development uh, organizations per se. So I think there's still quite a big need to keep a finger on this conflict sensitivity and do no harm principles. But also, and this is linked to that, of course, a lot of peace building efforts in the past decade, sometimes labeled as liberal peace building, had this kind of expectation that you can combine uh, political change with uh, kind of economic growth, but that you, in a way, provide almost the peace dividends as an incentive for people to wait until the political change would come. And I think that has backfired in many cases quite quite badly because it's it's not that easy and it, I think it was also explained earlier that um, development as such does not necessarily address grievances that has led to a conflict in the first place and very often it can also reinforce power structures at the center in the way it is being implemented or also manipulated. And I think there's often a spatial blindness towards 
development interventions or the way it is being also controlled or set up. So there's a need to understand much more and how in a way also in countries elites together with donors are also designing and implementing development and there are formal and informal mechanisms through which power at different levels is being negotiated and that's another important area of analysis. I think one could probably call it a bit this anthropological kind of perspective that we need but very much in an interdisciplinary kind of setup to understand also how politics of aid but also politics of power operate. And I think as a last quick statement, I mean, there is this new political settlement discussion, which I think still needs to be operationalized much more than it is at the moment. But I think an interesting differentiation there is between impersonal politics, where you can analyze systems and structures in terms of if you know the law, if you have a lawyer, you have access to certain rights and entitlements, as compared to more personalized politics, which you find in many countries where you do have conflicts where access to rights and entitlements uh, needs proper connections, needs proper social capital to people who have influence, but also where uh, contract enforcement happens much more through informal means, where MPs are private providers of services rather than ensuring that a certain framework is put in place. So this all then requires a much different kind of strategy also how to implement peace building and development but also how to negotiate with elites at different level a more inclusive and just settlement that then can also sustain peace or prevent new conflict. I end with this. Thank you.